Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. In today's episode, we have the privilege of featuring martial arts master who has redefined the concept of self-defense, Ed Parker Jr., the founder of Paxial Arts. Paxial Arts is a unique system that goes beyond traditional martial arts, incorporating non-lethal alternatives to address real-world situations where using excessive force may not be necessary or appropriate. Ed Parker's innovative approach focuses on developing mental awareness, emotional intelligence, and strategic thinking alongside physical techniques, making it a holistic system that empowers individuals, both mentally and physically. In addition to his expertise in martial arts and self-defense, Ed Parker is also an exceptional renowned artist in both digital and physical media. He has received widespread recognition for his artistic talents, having created works that have been featured in galleries, museums, are hanging on people's walls at home. His artwork was great inspiration in the martial arts industry for movie posters, books, covers, portraits, and certificates. Ed Parker's artistic background has also influenced his approach to martial arts as he incorporates creativity and self-expression into his training methods. Moreover, as the son of the founder of American Kempo, Ed Parker Sr., Ed Parker Jr. has inherited a legacy of excellence in martial arts. He's continued to build upon his father's teachings involving the American Kempo system into an innovative pack steel arts that is today. Through his commitment to martial arts and his exceptional skills as an artist, Ed Parker has become a distinguished figure in the world of martial art, inspiring practitioners worldwide to elevate their training to embrace the mind-body connection. So get ready to be inspired with the multifaceted talents of Ed Parker on the Mind Sensei podcast. I'd like to introduce a new guest today to the Mind Sensei podcast. He's a world-renowned artist, very famous for his artwork worldwide, it's easily recognizable, especially within the martial arts industry. He's also the founder of Paxteel Arts, which is a new generation of martial art coming out, which he's going to let us know about. And also the son of the founder of American Kempo, the founding grandmaster, Ed Parker. So welcome, uh, Ed Parker, to the Mind Sensei podcast, and thank you for joining, sir. Well, wow, thank you for having me. Tell me, uh, how was it growing up being the son of the founder in American Kempo? It was an honor and a privilege. It was, it was a, a very surrealistic uh, upbringing, and, and I'm very grateful for the experiences that I had growing up. My father was an amazing human being, and he introduced me to a lot of people that are still my friends today, 50 years later. And I'm definitely a better person for all the wonderful, rich relationships that I've had. Okay. And tell us... Um, even, even you and I, we've known each other for like 20 years now, I guess. Yeah. I definitely have to say, if it wasn't for Kempo, I would, wouldn't have met most of my best friends without it. So it's definitely... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So tell us, how did you start your martial arts journey? Who was the hero that you looked up to? I think that, you know, obviously the lowest hanging fruit was the backyard. So that's where most of my training happened. I did have some uh, dojo training, but for the most part, most of my training was in our backyard or in or my dad's living room. We had lessons in Hawaii when we're on family vacation. And we worked quite extensively on material when I worked with him and for him and by his side and partnered with him on uh, his book projects because I was an illustrator, still am. But as an artist, your job is to take what somebody has to say and try to recreate it into an illustration that people can comprehend. It was a lot of work trying to figure out how to get something out of my dad so that I can illustrate it. It was very difficult at times because he, he talked to me about the universal pattern and he goes, I, I just, it's three dimensional. And I, it, it goes like this and like this and like this and like this. And I'm like, okay, dad, I need you to slow down a little bit and help me understand what this and this and this means. I said, I, I, I don't understand what you're talking about. He goes, well, it's like a sphere. And, and so I, I come back and I, and I draw a three-dimensional sphere. And he goes, no, that's not it. And so I'm like, okay, okay. So I know what not to draw. That's good. That's good. Let's keep, keep, keep at it until we can figure out what to draw. And then finally, he was able to extract what was in his mind and, and give me an understanding so that when I did draw, what he wanted. His brother did most of those illustrations up until I got of the skill set to be, you know, a part of my dad's business and stuff. 
So his brother, David, did a lot of the illustrations growing up. His brother was a big hero of mine in art, loved his artwork, and he was a mentor of mine. And I always wanted to aspire to be like my Uncle David. And my dad had a lot of artwork done. In fact, his uh, Infinite Insights in the Kempo series, a lot of the illustrations that were in one and two were my Uncle David. And then on uh, the other part of two, three, four, and five, the Zen of Kempo, a lot of the manuals, a lot of the encyclopedia of Kempo happened after he passed away. But I, I got involved in, in doing a lot of the illustrations for that. So tell us also, I know that you've been involved with your artwork and in books with, say, I think we met, you had been involved in The Journey, which is a story of some of the other prominent Kempoists from your father's lineage. Sure. Can you tell us a bit sure. about that? I, I think as an artist, all you do is you work on projects. And so whatever the project is, you get to be involved with it for, you know, a couple of months. And then you work on another project and another project. In my career, I've done hundreds of books, hundreds of book covers, hundreds of magazine covers, video box covers, logos, patches, everything. And I guess it's kind of like being a carpenter. You, you might at the beginning work on, on um, foundational work, cement work, and then you do, you build walls and then you do some electrical and then you do drywalling and then you, you know, you, you keep adding and adding and adding to it, but you don't repeat the same thing in the whole process. Meaning once you do your foundation, you don't come back and keep doing foundation until the project's done. And so it's kind of like that with me where it's like, you work on design layout for a while and you work on, you know, picking the right font or picking how you want. Text is kind of boring. If you just see text, you know, if you get handed a manuscript, first thing you go is, wow, that's a lot of writing. <laughs> and, and you look at it as work. So your job as an artist is to how to make it so that you can skip to the next part to make it interesting. You have to understand the value of, of what we call white space, in other words, blank pages, or you don't start off with all the lettering squished to the top and bottom of the of the, the book. You fill it with an illustration or you fill it with a design. When a chapter starts, you want it to, to look a certain way. And the same thing when you do book covers. You're doing a book cover because, again, if it's a, a little book and just has text on it, it, it doesn't grab you. Your job is to sit there and, and get your audience to stop, pause, pick up the book and be curious about it. So if the artwork on the cover is like intriguing, that's what you do. You go, huh, I'm curious. What is this book about? Because the artwork got me to stop. And sometimes the, the, the cover has nothing to do with what's in the book. It's what I call the cereal box method. You know, when you, when you have a box of cereal and you put it down at breakfast, you start eating it. And next thing you know, you start reading the box. You look at the front, you look at the sides, you look at the, you know, the nutritional value, you see the back. It's, it's what you do. It's the same thing is that you, you do that. And some of the heroes I had in my life were motion picture artists. There's a guy by the name of Drew Struzan, D-R-E-W-S-T-R-U-Z-A-N. Uh, most people have a piece of his artwork in your video collection or your DVD collection. He did a tremendous amount of artwork over the years. He did Star Wars posters and Indiana Jones posters. And he, he was a, a very famous artist. And I always was fascinated by his artwork and wanted to bring that to the industry I was in. Being in the martial arts industry, my hero was Drew Struzan. So you have one image that you have to capture your audience that make them intrigued, make you want to pick up the book and read the book and, and collect the book. And fortunate enough to actually write him a letter and have him respond to me. And it was, uh, you know, I guess he would be the Ed Parker of, of the art community to me. And he was very, he was very respectful and it was very nice to, you know, let him know that, hey, you influenced me for this industry. And I've been working in the martial arts industry. I've done a lot of um, motion picture posters for the martial arts industry and different okay. things like that. It was, it was yeah. a great experience. Uh, I must admit, since... We've met. You've converted me into a Macintosh fan, so everything is Mac Mac <laughs> for me. Is that uh, that was that was a good introduction, and also your artwork has influenced a lot of people. A lot of us have been lucky enough to get a portrait. Like I've got a portrait, and some of my students have portraits from yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about the the portraits and the process behind that? I've always been a an individual who's who's got to uh, just like anything else you got to pay the bills so you, you look at what skills you possess and 
after my dad died, there was a lot of challenges working the family business. The business was Ed Parker Sr. So when he died, there was too many chiefs, not enough Indians. You know, everybody was the CEO of, of something. And, you know, my family had a very dedicated perception on how to do things, which was a traditional point of view. And I'm a progressive. My dad was a progressive. It didn't mix. I, I went off on my own and I started to do portraits. And I was working as an art director for different magazines and stuff like that. And it's like, I, I needed to find a place where I could be more unique. I chose to focus on the martial arts industry. And I thought, I wasn't that close to my dad at certain times in my life. When I was 19 years old, I had a portrait of him and it was a, turned out to be a big deal. There was like 50,000 copies sold. The, the proceeds uh, paid for a college and a mission that I wanted to go on. I, I served among the, uh, the Native Americans, Apache Indian reservations in uh, Arizona and in New Mexico. And that the, the proceeds from that portrait did it. So here it is 20 years later, I was thinking, why don't I use that same concept of documenting Kempowist? I picked uh, Huck Planis and Frank Troejo to be my first two portraits. And, you know, I just thought maybe I could feed the family doing this. I would be asked a couple of times a year to do seminars. And when I did, I'd offer portraits and they hit and they hit big. And I started, I, I must have done maybe 1500 portraits, maybe more in my career. But when you do, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a guy that had a lot of savings at different ventures. And so when I first started doing the portraits, it's kind of funny because the way people see, they, they copy my style. I have a blue cloud that's behind, you know, the, the portrait I draw. And the reason why I have a blue cloud is because there's a technique that you use in, in like, if you're in a concert and you're the main performer, they have the, a backlight on you and the backlight is so strong that it makes you kind of glow and pulls you away from the background, pulls you away from the drummer, pulls you away from everything. But the light behind you is brighter than the light that's on you in front. And so it, it kind of makes you, the background becomes dark and you become lit and you move yourself out. Well, motion picture poster artists do the same thing. They, they pull their art out by having them with, reflective light on the sides of them and stuff. I needed to do that, but I couldn't afford to have a whole picture with blue ink. So I was being chintzy. I just painted something small that I could put it in there. And I, I've seen a couple of dozen artists, they mimic my style by putting the cloud in there. And I always, I always think it's funny because it's like, I only did it for economic reasons and then it stuck, you know, and then you go, okay, well, that's kind of like my signature of, of how I do portraits. And so, you know, I, I was able to afford the material later in my career, but at the time, you know, you're going, well, you know, I only have X amount of money to do this. And, you know, I can't afford to spend $50 on blue ink for the whole background. You sit there and say, well, I can spend $5 worth of ink and make this blue cloud and, and make it so it works like that. You know, in time, I've, I've been able to obviously put off a full-on background using whatever ink I want, and whatever. And I've done a lot of those pieces too, but that's where it started. And I've seen dozens of artists who, who've mimicked my style and I'm, I'm quite honored and flattered by it. Yeah, I think, you know, I like to dabble in, the, I don't know, not at your level, but you definitely influence what I do and try to copy some of your style as your or my influence. Ooh. But there are people out there that like to copy and then there's like people that like to plagiarize too. So I think we both come across stuff all over the internet where um, people have oh, just blatantly copied your artwork and then claimed it as their own. What, what? Do you have any special stories or messages for those people out there if they're listening? Yeah, Car karma's a karma's going to come around and get you. <laughs> yeah. That's about all I can say. I mean, it's like you know, you know, there's all this cliche terms that they say, you know, and that is your karma is going to come bite you in the butt one day. You know, be a man of honor. All, all these different things, uh, and then they also say things like the highest form of flattery is plagiarism, and I like to say that. It's the only thing that, that happens, but my wife is a phenomenal writer. She's written a, a number of things and people, you know, when she went to college, she had stuff that she had written and the, the college professors stole it and put their name on it. My mother-in-law, she's a retired college professor that teaches organ. 
and she's witnessed a lot of people steal material and act like it's theirs. I've gone into a number of dojos and seen my artwork blown up and people have sold it. I've seen, I'd like to say it's only a a dozen times, but I've seen it hundreds of times. And it's discouraging, especially when there are times when, you know, they assume because you're famous that all the bills are always paid. They're not, you know, you're always, you're always having to work hard to make sure that you maintain an income. And sometimes there might be a year where there's a, a lean income flow and you see people have made money off you and it hurts your feelings. But this world is full of very uh, unsavory people that do, they lie, cheat and steal to make a buck. And I just know that my contribution to the planet wasn't theft. Yeah, I think that'd be a good contribution for most people if they didn't do that. But uh, yeah. What people do, they do. So with your artwork, it's sort of how I first met you. I was really super impressed by your work. You know, I'm sure everyone else feels the same way. Well, I'm lucky enough to get a portrait from you. I'm lucky enough to have a logo design done. And also you end up doing certificates as well. So again, tell us a little bit about that. It all started with my dad where he wanted to have a certificate for his black belts was, that was a little bit more dynamic. During the same time period, I was 19 years old when I was working on his portrait. I did a painting that he had his printer kind of re-manipulate for his black belt certificates. The way I looked at it was that you know, what is a certificate anyway? It's who gives you the certificates to the organization that that gives it to you. It's a bunch of text and it's a bunch of signatures and that's it. But what is a certificate for? Certificate is for you to know that it's an acknowledged accomplishment. I worked to get my black belt and therefore I have this certificate that shows me a reminder of the passion and effort I put into it. But once it goes on a wall, it's also a, it's a piece that allows your non-martial arts world to engage in what you do. Because we all have members of the family have no clue what you do as a martial artist. They have no clue what you've done, how many hours you put into it, what, how, how passionate you are about it. And they'll, I looked at it like if you have a really poor, ugly looking certificate, the kind of response you get from your non-martial arts world, they go, ah, so you're into karate, are you? And they instantly make a mockery of it. Yeah. And I always, I always thought, well, you know, we all have a contribution. If we're in an industry, we can contribute our own way. Like I'm not a, a, a famous movie star or anything like that, but I, I had a niche and my niche was doing artwork. My goal was to at least to raise the bar of professionalism. If they didn't do my artwork, then at least raise the bar for others to do make sure that the standard was higher so that when somebody did get a certificate, they would do this. Wow, this is a really impressive certificate. What did you do to earn this? And that's what I really wanted it to, to happen. I wanted your audience to say, what did you do to earn this? Versus, hey, you're into karate, are you? And it was about changing the way our industry gets treated as a profession, as a passion, as an industry. So that was the, the goal was to make it like our Oscar. If you get a black belt, you work a number of years, four, five, six years to get that black belt, then let that certificate represent what you feel you did with it. And, you know, I've been blessed too. thousands, tens of thousands of certificates I've produced in my career. I put them all to, to, to rest though, because everything that I'm doing in my career has ended with my art. It's all over. I've uh, retired from doing that, and I'm 100% working on my life, my life's passion, which is the Paxual Arts. Tell us a little bit more about the Paxual Art. I know you've been working on this for a while. It's sort of like a yang to your father's yin, is how I would sort of say. It, it is. So, soft to hard. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about it so people understand. Definitely has been a, a project I started after my dad died. The whole concept was after he died, it was about how can you add to Kempo to make Kempo have other variables and other options? When I started to look at the Kempo system, I was going, you have your base technique, you have your extension to the technique. Why can't you be taught an alternative technique? Why does it have to be chop you in the throats, then hit you in the testicles, kill you, then maim your car car your carcass? You know, it's like I didn't understand that we didn't have options. Not everything deserves a life and death scenario. 
not every situation needs a sledgehammer as a solution. We don't always have to practice leap of death. We don't always have to do these aggressive. Now, I, I, I'm completely pro any of those techniques if you're in a situation that justifies it. But I find that the, the material that, that I, I've been working on and developed over the past 30 years has been more of a, of a situation where I, I've dealt with a lot of law enforcement and they say they, they use Kempel maybe once a year and they say they use Paxial Arts once a day. They say they use material that is more suited for solving problems without the extremes. I first was calling it passive Kempo. I was just looking at alternative options so that you might attack me, but you might be a friend or you might be a relative that's inebriated or something like that. And I don't want to annihilate you. I don't want to hurt you. And there's a big assumption that people in martial arts know the material already. And that happens from the, the world outside the martial arts, because I was pulled in for court cases all the time. And, and you know, jurors and, and judges would say, so you're an expert at martial arts, so you're trained not to do this kind of stuff. And I'm all like, actually, no, we're not. We're not trained to be peaceful. We're not trained to do this. We're trained to handle the extreme circumstances. So I started to look at, at options about how do you handle it? And, and I'm also was looking at it from a different perspective, and that is the end game. And that is, if you've done martial arts your whole life long, at what point do you become Miyagi? At what point do you become Master Shifu? At what point do you become this peaceful, wise master that can do both peaceful stuff and deadly stuff? But if you're never taught the peaceful stuff, then all you are is nothing but a loaded machine gun. And I've seen people overuse their material. I've seen people put people in hospitals. They didn't suffer the consequences of it legally, but they should have. They should have. It was overuse. And so it was my way of saying, okay, how are we going to look at this differently? And it took a long time. And it actually took reuniting with my childhood sweetheart, my, my wife, Fair. Her and I have been working the past 10 years on writing a book curriculum of this. And then after COVID hit, we changed it from uh, being a book series and turned it into a video series, uh, an online course series. And so that's what we're offering now. We've been up and running for about a month and a half now. Our response has been phenomenal. We have people all around the world that are taking the courses. They're participating in it. Very intelligent people, very um, very skilled at what at, at what this is about. They they. They catch on to the concept, you know, for your audience, just go to our website, Paxial, P-A-X-T-I-A-L-A-R-T-S.com, PaxialArts.com. And you can read some of the articles. We're going to post a free lesson on there probably this upcoming week so that people can take a free lesson and get the concept of, of how we're teaching it. The material is based upon the exact opposite of martial teaching. From martial arts, you learn from the outside in. And for Paxial arts, you learn from the inside out. You learn about how to um, expand your, your brain, expand your mind, expand your thinking, understand perceptions better. There's a lot of, of things you, you, you expect to learn in a martial arts school that you're not taught. This is the material you should be taught. This is the... This is the the mastery stuff, even though it, it, it's peaceful in nature, we're only teaching it to martial artists because, you know, you don't want to teach somebody who doesn't know martial arts peaceful material. And then if the fight demands a little bit more knowledge in terms of aggressive self-defense options, you, you cannot teach somebody peace first. You have to teach a martial artist how to do this and gives them the option because that's the ultimate power is to have both sides of the coin covered. We all want that knowledge. I would love the knowledge to sit there and say, okay, I could annihilate you, but I didn't. I allow you to, and I, I saw my dad do this. He set that example for me at the latter part of his life. He constantly talked about the fights he won mentally. He, he knew he could beat him physically. That was easy, but that was not his challenge. And so there's physical material, so it, it's we call it mind, soul, and body training, and you get taught in that order. And what we mean by soul training 
is that you actually learn through the artistic community about how an artist sees the human figure. When a martial artist sees it, we see him as, you know, a chart on a wall with a bunch of, you know, meridians all over the body and they're standing there like this with dots all over them. An artist looks at it differently. In fact, I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. This is how an artist sees a body. We see simple shapes, right? And in these simple shapes, what happens is we learn a thing about called lines and curves, right? In a Kempo situation, if I see this line, I'll, I'll intersect this line, hammer fist to the, to, to the thigh. I'll, I'll break down the body, right? But in a partial context, I look at the body from the side angle and I say, from this angle, it's a line. But from this angle, it's a curve. And when you manipulate curves, there's a whole science behind it. And that is, this is a structural curve of the body. You can take a person down in the, in the most gentle ways if you understand about structural integrity based upon curve and when you apply movement on the curve. And the general rule is this, if you see a major structural curve in the body, you elongate the curve, you compress the curve, compress the body, taking the hips, you compress that line or compress the curve or you twist the curve. So it's all gr groupings of three, just like everything in the world is, is in groupings of three, hot, hot, neutral, cold, high, medium, low. There's always white, gray, black. There's always groupings of three. And if you look and you look at some of the, the things that are in science, they're all there. And the way we look at it is, is that if self-defense is a cruise ship, and let's just say self-defense is, I'll just use this same figure. Say this is a, a ship going down the ocean. But the thing is, is if this is called SS self-defense, the starboard side of the ship, it's got all the martial arts masters and, and all the brains on this side. And so the ship is going down lopsided. If you look at self-defense as a ship, other science is there called Paxil. And that is, if you put more of the same intelligent people, but you understand that there's another way of problem solving physical altercations, the same intelligent people, if they came here, the ship wouldn't be so imbalanced. I didn't invent this. I found it. It's just a science that we neglected. There's an opposite to everything in the world. Up, down, right, left, hot, cold. And if I asked you what's the opposite of war, what would you say? Peace. But what's the opposite of martial? Nobody has an answer because there is no answer. And that's what I, I stumbled across. And I'm like, okay. We just neglected to acknowledge an opposite science and an opposite opportunity to put your intelligence and your discoveries i'm not a grand master of this i'm just the poor sap who discovered it i discovered something i discovered an uh, a non-acknowledged science it's it's there it's the opposite side of the coin in fact here we got a coin right here see this is marshall this is paxel one coin two options and that's all it is. It's just discovering the opposite science. And how, how did the name come to be? If you look at the, the history of Mars, right? Mars is the name of the Roman god, small g, was an actual human being. They deified him. But his name was Mars, and they named martial arts after him. It used to be called the Arts of Mars. And the Arts of Mars eventually turned into the martial arts. But if you just take the word martial, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, and you take away M-A-R off of it, you fill it with who is the Roman god of peace. Well, her name was Pax, P-A-X. So all I did was I replaced M-A-R with P-A-X, and that's how I came up with the name Paxial Arts. And I was struggling trying to figure out how to take this wealth of knowledge and all these discoveries and make it so that people can comprehend it and understand it. And so my wife, we used to date in high school. We were, we were best of friends. We had the opportunity to reunite 10 years ago and we've been inseparable ever since. And she does all the script writing of the, the lessons. You know, she takes down my notes and she says, okay, I think you might offend some people if you say this. Oh, we don't want to do that, you know. 
And so she's very articulate. She's, she's wor- very well read. And, and she makes sure that we work as a team so that what is taught is viable, scientifically based. Everything is, is really solid. And we've had a number of people understanding of what it means and, and what to do with it. And the way we look at it is, it's like, I, I don't treat people like I'm some grandmaster and everybody's a peon. I treat it like, look, we're all very intelligent people who, you know, I'm, I'm several steps ahead of people, but I'm stuck in this understanding of science. And I'm saying, can you guys see this science? Can you see the value of it? And it, it turned into a thing where during the past several years, we taught this to a bunch of Kempo students in the Arizona school system, kids. They used the material. They had uh, nine of our students got into fights and zero suspensions. It worked. It completely 100% worked. We have one of our students was a prison guard. He uses it daily. There's another guy who's a, in, he's a police officer. He uses it daily. They, they love the material. People that are in the medical industry, they use the material. There's a lot of value in seeing solutions that are different than what people are used to doing. And it's coming out of the martial arts industry. I mean, I'm a martial artist and it came from that industry. So it's not, some people look at it and we call it a peaceful martial, uh, we call it a peaceful self-defense. It's not a martial art because it doesn't fit under the definition of martial. All it is, is just, we found a place for it to exist, for a place for it to flourish. And I'm in my mid sixties now. So everything we're doing is we're just raising people to be our heirs. That's all we're doing. We're capable of taking people on a global level to understand what we're doing. And we're raising them to understand how to think, how to teach, how to present the material and how to be heirs to the system. Unlike where my dad didn't assign people to be his heirs, we are. We're, we figured that out. And would you say it's a, the peaceful solution to an altercation? It is. It's definitely a peaceful solution. I mean, the thing is, is that if we look at ourselves as nothing more than, than men with tool belts, and you know, there are times when you reach into that tool belt, and you're going to pull out a hammer, but you might need to pull out your, your rag, <laughs> you know, you might need to pull out a paintbrush. And the thing is, it's what tool do you need for what circumstance? And that's, that's literally all it is. And there are circumstances well, in fact, one of our, our, our top students, his name is Andrew Pilch. He's out of Tucson, Arizona, been with me for almost 30 years now. He's my top student and he got remarried and his stepson attacked him and he was going to go right into automatic Kempo mode. And he said, no, nah, I was trained to, to have alternative solutions. So he used Paxual Arts and he goes, it saved his marriage because he would have gone into auto mode. He would have hurt his stepson. And he said he gives 100% credit to Paxual Arts saving his circumstance because he had an alternative tool to use in the circumstance. Yeah, sure. I've uh, I've personally had two family altercations um, with inebriated, quite inebriated family members where uh, one was female, where she thought, like you said, they want to see what the martial artist can do. You know, they got a bit brave. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I sort of ran through 154 techniques in my head in 0.1 seconds and went, tripping arrows, the only thing I can do that'll keep the family still talking to each other. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, we, yeah. if we're going to spend 30 years doing the same material over and over again, it's helpful to have more options in there. And they're not that much different. You just have to reprogram, you know, your mind into understanding different circumstances, especially You've been in a circumstance where you see the value for having that knowledge. And all you do is you pull it out and say, this is the knowledge I'm going to use in this circumstance. You know, we, we look at all the times we might need to use leap of death. Oh boy, there sure is a moment. I know once in my life, I'll use leap of death, you know, but I've used Paxual Arts all a thousand times more than I've used any of my Kempo. You know, it's, it's completely understandable where people don't get the concept because you know, it's, it's definitely something that, it's new. And whenever there's something new, you know, it's easy to sit there and belittle something that's new and call it, it's not useful. It doesn't work. Uh, I've, I've heard all that. And to be honest with you, the people who've actually trained or actually interact, they've all loved it. 
they all get the concept that there it's it's nothing more than a, a neglected science that was discovered and the thing is is that your partial arts is only as good as you you're the one who has to do it all it is is a science you learn the science you apply the science there's a value to it there's been a lot of activity outside the martial arts industry that's really into i mean really into it. when the martial artists can catch up with this there's going to be a huge market for it you know we're looking forward to having people catch on we, we encourage people come join us it's a hundred dollars a month you get four about an hour's worth of lessons for the month and it, not a lot to invest i think that most people who, who've uh who've taken it are absolutely enthralled by it okay and they they're in it they're in it for the long haul it's about a three-year program some great material in it with the training materials that so they become an instructor and end up passing it on or is it for personal use yeah actually it's it, we're training instructors the the first course is just the way my dad set it up when he first started teaching martial arts kempo in california nobody knew what it was so he put an ad in the local paper and he said karate instructor needed no experience necessary a lot of people in fact larry tatum frank trejo a lot of people actually answered that ad and they became the top people in kempo from going off that ad and so we took the same approach. It's like partial arts instructors needed, no experience necessary. But yeah, there is experience. And the experience that we need is that you need to be a martial artist already. So we're not teaching people that are not martial artists. We're teaching that people that are martial artists. In fact, we're teaching the instructors. So we're not teaching any of the lower ranks. In fact, we're not ever getting involved in that. That's what we're training. We're training people to teach it in their studios. You guys run it. You guys teach it. You guys come from that angle. Uh, we, we try to maintain an, a, a standard within the system. We call it, we don't use the same martial terms. We call them ambassadors because they're nothing more than peace ambassadors. But we are asking that people that do enroll in the course are experienced black belt instructors. And so we're starting with that. We'll be doing that for about a year and then we can bring maybe some, some of the first degree black belts into it later, but you can't, you can't give everybody the volume of material we're giving. Our first course is the, the ambassador program and the ambassador program is what we're calling it. And they get everything. They get the whole thing. And then anybody who comes after that gets pieces of it. They don't get the full three-year program and they don't get the whole thing. And we're pulling people out of the ambassador program that are exceptional students. They really, really get it. They're, they're really enthusiastic about it. They start giving ideas and concepts in there. And we have uh, two levels that are above ambassador. We call it uh, an engineer or a physicist. The physicists, we're only picking 12 of them. And out of the 12, that's our, that's our heirs. And once we pick the 12, the next physicists, they pick 12. So they'll pick 12 errors for themselves. And it goes in that capacity. So they'll always be physicists, but we call it based on the generation. We're teaching this. So it's generation one or G1. And so as far as G1 is concerned, anybody who says they're G1 is studied directly under us. That's it. Anybody who's under us, their students will be G2. And so if people, you know, everybody goes, well, you know, I studied under Ed Parker. Actually, this is a different way. This is Ed Parker Jr. And if you studied under me directly, you go to the end. You're certified. And if you're certified, yes. You can't say, oh, I took a, I took a, a half-hour lesson from him, and therefore I'm certified. It doesn't work that way. Because we're also filming the test at the end. And if you claim you have a certificate and you have no video, you didn't do the system. It's that simple. It's a video test. And that's, it, it's not a, yeah, I make certificates and yeah, I design one for the end. But the thing is, is that it's designed to take advantage of the technology of today to cut out people's Pinocchio stories. A lot of people claim to be high ranking black belts that didn't earn it. This is a way of stopping it. This is a way of saying, did you do your video for the, the, for the ambassador test? Then you'd, you know, it's not rocket science. Either you did a video and you trained or you didn't. And, and you know how people are. People will say, I taught Ed Parker Jr. everything he knows. 
<laughs> no, you didn't. This is something I did on my own. You know, these these are the thousands and thousands of hours I figured this out on my own, uh, riding on an airplane when I'm traveling to Europe or to Australia or wherever. You know, these are my notes. These are my notes. These are my stuff. And I gave this these notes to my wife, and she sat there and she goes, "People aren't going to understand you. Let's 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 make this collegiate. Let's make this comprehensive." Let's back this stuff up with science. This is, you know, neuroscience. And, and if this isn't, you know, if you don't have the right terminology, then let's do the, the courses to understand exactly the psychology behind this. Is there a terminology for it? So we've adopted the proper uh, material based upon that. And we finally found that we we're prepared to get up and teach and promote and and do this and it's happening now we're really we're really thrilled because we have some very intelligent people on board we have a nuclear physicist on board we have the son of a of a physicist on board we have you know college professors on board you know there's some very very talented very very and, and a lot of very accomplished uh, uh kempoists are on board i visited your house a long time ago when we first met, we were sitting around in your office. Part of the reason for the Mind Sensei podcast is to share the stories that no one gets to hear. Like I travel, yeah, I hear the stories, I try to replicate the experience, but sometimes the embellishments don't go the right way. When we're in your office, there were, you had some black belts lying around your office. One of them was your dad's black belt, and then there was another seventh degree Kaju Kempo black belt. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Oh, wow. To be honest with you, it's like there's, I've had such a colorful life and so many things and, and I don't have all the elements that I used to have, you know, divorce yeah, yeah. moves and stuff. So you, you lose track of certain things and sometimes you need the item itself to trigger the memory. Yeah. I've had a number of, of belts. I had some belts from my father, different ranks that, that I received, you know, cause it's kind of interesting. Even in my tempo journey, I never, ever took on a rank. I kind of, you know, it's one of those things where you go, look, I, I'm not one of you guys. I'm one of you guys, but I'm not one of you guys. The way I looked at it was you know, some people go, well, you're 10th degree to us. And other people go, well, you're not even a white belt to us. And you, you have this, this dynamics. I live under the statement that Shakespeare said to thine own self be true. Did I earn my black belt? Absolutely. But when I was awarded my black belt, I was automatically promoted to fifth degree and i said no nah, i'm not comfortable with that and i was like well to us you've earned a fifth degree i'm like yeah and that's fine that you hold me, me in your heart that way for me because i can i will and i've never put a, a rank on my my black belt ever and i've received people who have said we've seen you perform we've seen you do the techniques we've seen you do material we've seen what you're capable of doing and to us, you're a 10th degree. So I've been promoted all the way up to 10th. I've been promoted. You know, I've had belts in my house that were seven degrees. I, I never put any of them on because it's not my path. It was never my path. My black belt has no stripes on it. Never will. Never has. And I'm good with that. That's the way I've rolled. Yeah, sure. The uh, only reason I bring up the black belt was we were sitting in your office. is a pretty poignant moment for myself anyway. Like a kid in a candy shop, I'm with Ed Parker's son because Ed Parker's not around anymore. We're talking Kempo, we're talking artwork, we're talking computers, all the things I love. I turned around and asked you, what's that black belt on the wall? And you turned around to me with this real serious look, you know. Uh, that's my dad's black belt that Chow gave him. He's like, I'm like, uh, uh, sit in awe. And you said, do you want to hold it? I'm like, want to hold it? Yeah, I want to hold it. <laughs> So I've got, a, I've got that photo, which is probably you know, an exciting moment for myself. All sort of people, when they first come to that point, so that was sure. yeah, that, that was an, a good moment. And I think of I course, had um, had Shane Parker with me as well, so he, he ended up getting a hold of it too. So he's got right. this look of ex it's really good. His expression is way better than mine in the photo. So I've still got that photo. I might pop it up if we do a video short to show his expression. That's really cool. You know. That's awesome. Also, I did notice when we we're at your house and we we're having a chat, we we're at the back uh, on your port. That was my first introduction to an American skunk. 
<laughs> remember that <laughs> we had to quickly race yeah. inside because it was a it was a situation <laughs> well fortunately uh where we live now we don't have skunk problems we have had a very well we're, we we live in the middle of nowhere uh we're up in we're up in a valley in the mountains in this forest we've had every experience from having mountain lions bears deer elk even cattle have been on our property my wife had an experience with a Sasquatch, or so we believe. You know, it's it's definitely you know things that you can't explain. I mean, can we uh, you know definitively identify it as that? No, but can you base upon your your experience and your interaction what it isn't? You can say, I know it wasn't this. I know it wasn't that. I know it wasn't this. You're left with okay, this is this is not out of the realm of possibility that this could be this. And so we've had those experiences and it's it's a, a very unique experience living where we live because I lived in a city and now we're lucky if we see five people a year where we live. It's very remote. I think we spoke about this before. We were just saying that uh, it's not a, you can't exactly get Uber Eats where you are. No, but you know what it did? It turned my wife and I, my wife has always had the skills of a great cook. Now that's my new form of artwork is is the kitchen you know the culinary arts are are fun because we have a different lifestyle now you know before when you have a normal life you get up you go in your car you go to work you do your lunch wherever you know wherever your taste buds led you the way we work now is a hundred percent of what we do is in the house we edit we write we we film we do all that we're supposed to do i still do have certificate clients and some artwork clients that'll still be with me for another year or so, but we're not taking any new clients on. My portrait days are over. And so a lot of people say, oh, you know, I want to collect one one day. Well, that one day is gone. Whoever was blessed enough to get, catch it at the time, that's great. Our, our focus is, I mean, we all have one project that we want to do in our life. What you're doing now, this podcast, it's brilliant. You have such a, um, a gift for being able to engage people in, in conversation and talk so passionately and you're able to really get into people's heads and in their hearts and get them to talk to you. You're very personable. And this is definitely something I think is a, is a good niche for you. And thanks, thanks. for us, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of, of, you know, knowing you for so long and seeing that you're into this at this point. You know, this is something that obviously you found a way of making life work for you. You're going to, this is what you envisioned and you've said, okay, you know, I'm biting the bullet and I'm doing it. I'm, I'm getting the equipment and I'm, learning the technology and I'm, I'm starting a podcast. And for us, it's like, I wanted to get the Paxual Arts done, but our first thought was do books. And when we're doing the books, it's like, yeah, but people, are they really going to catch on from a book? You know, I don't want to be a bunch of collectors that collect the book and don't do the material. That's why we said, okay, let's do online courses and let's really interact with people and get them to understand the science of it and get them to understand that it isn't monkey see, monkey do. It, it's reprogramming the mind, reprogramming the soul, expanding the body's understanding of how to look at the science of motion and movement. For me, this has been, I've been involved in this development longer than I knew my dad. I was 30 when he died. And here it is 33 years after he died. And I'm finally able to, to be in a position to release this material that I've been working on for over half my life. But this is, I don't know what they call it, the swan song, your your opus, the, yep. your big opera your big or moment. whatever. You know. Yeah, correct. Yep. Yeah, your big moment. That's what this is for me. It's, it's making sure that, you know, because I mean, to be honest with you, you know, I do believe in an afterlife. I do believe that when you die, you go somewhere. And I believe that you have to answer for your life. And I believe that when I die, the one thing, you know, I don't want, whether it be God, whether it be St. Peter, whether it be whoever it is, I don't want them to say, so Ed, what was your life? You know, tell me about your life. Well, I did a bunch of pretty pictures. Great. What else did you do? Um, I made some certificates. Great. What else did you do? Well, I did a, about a thousand seminars, maybe 1500 seminars. What else? I mean, that's it. And I don't want my end game just to be that my contribution was a bad sequel to Ed Parker Sr. I, I don't want that. 
I don't want it to be that I just did a bunch of pretty pictures. I'm proud of what I did. I'll never be ashamed of what I did, but it's, I think being Ed Parker's son, you want more. He did more. He, he set an example to do more too. And so I want to make my dad proud by saying I didn't waste the talents he gave me. I didn't want to waste intelligence he gave me. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah, no, that's great. Tell us, how did you start your martial arts journey and obviously involved in your dad's art and who were some of the first few people that you trained with or who instructed you? And I think everyone probably wanted to get their meat hooks into you to sort of claim that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I've always been an unusual kind of guy. I, I know that I'm different, but because I was different, I was given different options and opportunities. I start off my martial arts training as being one of the first karate kids in the United States. There were no other kids in the schools at the time. It was 95% men, 5% women, no children whatsoever. The lessons weren't fun because uh, they weren't structured for kids. They weren't structured to be fun or you didn't get to tumble and roll. You did step drags for two hours and the incentive was getting a chocolate soda at the end of your lesson. And the people that instructed me as a kid, they were bitter about it. They looked at it, you know, they call my dad the old man, like the old man of the sea, O-L-D, but O-L-E, old man. So they refer to him like the captain of the ship or whatever. And they were like, yeah, the old man stuck me with the little brats. You know, they, were, they weren't too thrilled about teaching us either. So there was definitely the dynamics of them being bitter about having to be stuck with kids. And us being bitter about having to be with people that were bitter about being with kids. And I, I mean that because I was training with my two older sisters. The three of us would go. And there had been times I would go up on my own. I wouldn't go with my sisters. My dad came from an angle where we were raised with another family in Kempo. My dad had a friend that he met in the U.S. Coast Guard. And his name was Ralph Castro. And the Castro family are well known for people who are in the States. You know, the Castros are well known martial arts family. There was a whole bunch of girls and two boys. And one of the boys was my age. His name was Boss. And we just palled around. We were always hanging out together. We always had a good life. But Ralph Castro took the approach of this is what we do. This is what our family does. You're, you must take Kempo. There is no out. And my dad looked at that and he said, I'd like to raise my kids different. And he'd say, try it once a year. And if it's not for you, we'll revisit it again in another year. And so we kind of had that leapfrog approach where that's the way the Castros are raised and we were raised differently. And I didn't take Kempo serious until I was in my uh, late teens, early twenties. That's when I started taking Kempo more serious with my dad and stuff. Uh, he trained me. Uh, we never, ever, ever trained in a uniform. We're never in a gi, never on a mat. We were in the living room. You know, he was either in his Hawaiian shirt or he was just in his pajamas. And it, it was always a, a Mr. Miyagi lifestyle that we lived. And my dad, he, he realized that I didn't fit with the other students. And so he, he looked at it this way. He goes, you know what, son? I don't want you to learn Kempo the way I teach everybody else. I want my son to know how to think. And so my adult class with him was we did delayed sword and it was almost a year of doing delayed sword, but it was never the same way. He said, let's do delayed sword with a, a grab lock takedown. Let's do delayed sword with uh, nerve strikes. Left, let's do uh, delayed sword in opposites and reverses. Let's look at the different options. Let's do target specifics. Let's look at it this way and this way and this way. And let me refine this movement. And I was more of a laboratory rat for ideas that he had. At the first, you, you're going, well, crap. You know, I'd, I'd like to be in the studio for a month and get my yellow belt. How do I work with my dad for thousands of hours and get nothing? I, I was discouraged at first, but then I realized looking back, wow, did I get a lesson that nobody got? I got, you know, I got what my dad wanted me to have. That's, that's what he said. This is the way I want to raise my son. This is where I want my son to think. This is the way I need him to understand the system. And he completely came from a different angle over the years. You know, we talked about that in an interview that didn't get recorded, but I, I was influenced by three instructors that I did enjoy working with some, you know, I, I call it, you know, constants and a variable say who was consistent in my life and who was a variable. 
and the variables are kind of like a, a single service instructor. You have one lesson with them and that's it. Some of them it's because they look at me as like, I'm now their boy. And I look at it like, you know, I'm the boy of my dad. You're not my dad. You're not my instructor. You're a person who wants to pass on knowledge. If I adopt you as my instructor, that's one thing. But we're just sharing Matt right now where you're passing on information to me. And if your style doesn't fit me, thank you. It's been nice, but we're good. And I don't need a second. And I had a lot of them. I had dozens and dozens of them that were single service instructors. The ones that weren't were Frank Trejo, Huck Planis, and Ron Chappelle. Ron Chappelle was the most extensive person I've ever spent on a mat with. We spent it at his dojo. We spent it at my home studio. We spent decades working on material. And I, I definitely played a lot with his his students we, we trained a lot i had great memories and stuff did you did you, you, know, you got was, your black belt from uh, ron chappelle was that right i did i did and you know it was one of those things where the way i trained with my dad it, he said i don't want to teach my son the commercial material that's the way he used the word he said i don't want to teach my son the commercial material it was discouraging when you go well i don't have a rank with my dad but the thing is, is I had more private lessons than all his students combined. I had more time on the mat with him than anybody did combined. How do I know that? Because I was with him. I saw who come over once a week for a lesson. And I saw that I had 40 hours of lessons with him that week. And I saw maybe five people get an hour here, another group an hour here, another group an hour there. He'd go off to Santa Monica and train the guys down there and come back. But I know what he did. I know who he did. I know who he talked to. I know who he liked. I know who he didn't like. And it's it's never going to be my role to to expose those who uh, tell a different story. That's that's not my role. This world has too much gossip and too much negativity and stuff. That's not my role. I like being positive. I like being happy. You know, I, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, and I'm doing what I love most with my my best friend, my wife. You can't get caught up on on things because you know the Kempo community can be very toxic you know it's it's like if you identify yourself as a warrior you identify yourself as a warrior and if there's no war you get restless and you look for fights you look for confrontation and i've seen that and the thing is is that there's better things to do in your life than to constantly create contention and there's there's groups that create contention i i just don't want to be a part of that you know we, we've had that conversation yeah you know we, we like to be, we just like to be part of a thing that that enhances people's lives for the better, enhances relationships. I don't want to be caught up in a, in a gossip circle, sitting around and trash talking people. That's just not healthy. It's not healthy for our community. It's not healthy for our souls. It's like, I like, you know, reuniting with my friends. I mean, you and I got close and, you know, we've had a, a good relationship for a long time. And it's like, I, I enjoy seeing your face. I enjoy talking to you, but it brings back fond memories and, memories of how how you didn't know how to make guacamole and i'm like i know yeah, how to yeah. make guacamole. yeah we definitely credit you for that it's gone non-stop and been yeah. a hit for the last what 13 14 years whatever it's been yeah um, yeah. yeah we're the guacamole yes. kings now guacamole sauce <laughs> you know it just it, it it makes i mean the bottom line is we're only on this earth for so much time and the time you choose to spend with people it's what makes your life richer. It's what makes your, I mean, we fill our minds with memories and do you want to fill it with good memories or bad memories? You want to fill it with toxic people or not toxic people. And I've been really blessed. I've been having some incredibly wonderful life experiences with, with Kempo brothers and, and family members, you know, that I've gained from the martial arts industry overall. I have friends in the Sistema group, the Russians. I have friends in, uh, in other arts and it's so simple. You know, we all have a common denominator, and that is we train to make our lives better and more enriched and more knowledgeable and more useful. You know, we pass on information, we share information, and I, I love that. I love being in a constant state of wonderment and discovery. You know, I'm, I'm 63 years old. I'm still learning constantly, constantly. I love to learn. I love being a permanent student. Yeah, definitely agreed. I'm uh, exactly the same way. I like to throw myself in very deep into learn every aspect of whatever it is you're involving yourself in uh, hence hence the podcasting yeah. now so 
That's a yeah, whole, whole it's new what they call yeah. living. Yes, yeah, it's called correct. living, not existing. Live, live life. Don't exist in life. Don't, don't live for the six pack at the end of the day. Get up and live. Do you have a philosophy or a mantra that you sort of live your life by? I do. I do believe in. You know, I mentioned this earlier. The Shakespearean quote: "To thine own self be true." I believe in that. I believe that you you got to be true to yourself, what you believe in, what you want to believe in. I believe in being always in a constant state of wonderment and discovery. I believe in never being stagnant, never being comfortable. You know, don't rest on your laurels. Don't talk about who you used to be. You know, in my early days, boy, I could kick everybody's butt. I, you know, it's like, what have you done now? I believe in being reinventing yourself every 10 years my dad did he was he every 10 years he evolved same thing here i had a lot of growing up to do and a lot of evolving to do and had i not gone through those stages i wouldn't be where i'm at today i'm very very happy i believe i believe in soulmates i found my soulmate and i believe that when you find your your other half when you really find your other half life is magical life is worth living life is worth pursuing your dreams and your passions over and i do i do that on a daily basis and i i love it i i couldn't be happier what advice would you have to someone that was thinking about getting into pack steel or the martial arts or anything um, if they were looking to start what would your advice be to them you know what any educational system is really simple you do that to make your life richer better more knowledgeable Nobody likes to be ignorant or taken advantage of, bullied, whether it's bullied intellectually or bullied physically. It's about changing the odds. We can never put odds 100% in our favor. I could train every day from when I was five years old till now in Kempo. Some guy can walk in the room with a shotgun and kill me. And it's like, I can't block, I can't block, you know, shotgun pellets plastering my chest. You can never, ever promise somebody 100% odds in their favor. But what you can do is you can put odds in your favor. Not 100%, but you can say, what are my odds of being able to defend myself if I have self-defense knowledge, Kempo knowledge? Well, they're, they're better than 0%. 50% is better than 0%. But what happens when you're in a legal situation and all you know is deadly stuff and you haven't learned peaceful options and peaceful solutions, what happens when, I, I always say this, this is one of my statements, and that is the best time to plan out plan B is not when you're rotting in jail for the rest of your life. That's not when you come up with plan B. You come up with plan B ahead of time, and you think about how could I be attacked physically or how can I be attacked financially? How could I be sued? And I've had martial arts friends of mine they use their martial arts skills. Uh, as a hop keto friend of mine teaches in LA. His family was attacked. He busted out his hop keto. Next thing you know, he lost his school. They sued him for all he, he was worth because he was the martial artist that should know better. We have to look at everybody is trying to attack us. If it isn't our physical physicality, they're trying to attack our wallet. They're trying to attack our, our livelihood. And it's about putting the odds in our favor. So you know, be smart enough to put odds in your favor. And that's a wrap for today's episode on the Mind Sensei podcast, featuring the visionary martial arts and founder of Paxteel Arts, Ed Parker. We hope you've enjoyed his insightful discussion and Ed Parker's journey, his philosophies on martial arts and the power of non-lethal alternatives in self-defense. Be sure to tune in next time as we continue this fascinating conversation with Ed Parker in the second half of this two-part special series. We'll delve deeper into his journey, his experience as a martial artist and an artist, and find how he's empowering countless individuals with Paxteel Arts. Thank you for joining us today, and don't forget to subscribe to the Mind Sensei podcast for more inspiring conversations and thought leaders and experts on the mind-body connection. See you next time. I'm your host Peter Taz and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. I want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support 
and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.